So there once was a census taker who was assigned a very remote and rural part of the Appalachian Mountains. And it was his job to go door to door to every house and to get a, a census of those pe- to get those people registered for the census. And so this man starts out in these deep woods of the Appalachian Mountains, and he comes to this house, knocks on the door. The uh, woman of the house answers the door, and he says, Ma'am, can you tell me how many people live here? And she said, Well, there's me and my husband, and then there's the kids. There's, there's Bill, and there's Susie, and there's Bob, and there's Marianne. And, and the census taker says, Ma'am, ma'am, excuse me, ma'am, you don't understand. I don't need their names. I need the numbers. And she said, well, pardon me. They don't have numbers. They have names. (laughs) Have you ever been in a situation where all you felt like was a number? Have you ever gone to the DMV? I love the DMV, don't you? Whether you're there to renew your license, to to renew your tags, or whatever other business you have there, you show up, and, and, and I don't know if it's still this way, because now you can do a lot of it online, but back in the day, you'd have to walk up to one of these machines, pull a, a number off of it, and wait. And wait. And wait. Sitting in those uncomfortable chairs that they shout numbers, and for the next few hours you're waiting until your number gets called, and when your number finally does get called, you go up to the counter, and they're having the worst day of their life. And it is a miserable experience. In part, because you're just a number. You know, I wonder if God ever feels that way. You see, it's it's very easy for people to treat God like a number. That's because it's easy for us to treat Him like some impersonal entity that's off in the distance, to treat Him as one for whom we have very little need, very little appreciation, or very little interest. And I believe one reason that happens, and one reason that people take that approach to God from time to time is because we don't know His name. As I introduced last week, we're going to embark on this study of God's names called name dropping. And, and every week for, for the, the course of this summer, at the very least, we're going to experience a new name of God that's been revealed to us in Scripture. But we're going to start today with his personal name. God has a personal name. You just might not see it that often. Because the personal name of God is hidden to us. You see, it appears more than 6,000 times, more than 6,500 times in the Old Testament. But you often don't see it. That's because it is typically replaced with the word Lord written in all capital letters. When that happens, the biblical text is representing the presence of God's personal name, but it's continuing the practice of the Jews, who for centuries have not pronounced God's personal name out of reverence for the third command. You may recall from our study last week that the third command says, 
You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The Jews feared that consequence, not being held guiltless. And it caused them to avoid using the holy name of God altogether. And as a result, they developed this protective practice of substituting the term Lord in its place. And so anytime as you journey through the Bible, you see the word Lord written in all capital letters or small capital letters, that's the personal name of God to which we are introduced in Exodus chapter 3. God was recruiting Moses at the burning bush. He wanted Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, but Moses was hesitant to enlist in God's operation. Actually, that might be an understatement, because as you journey through Exodus chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 4, you'll witness a litany of excuses offered by Moses as why he shouldn't be the guy God used. And you quickly realize that Moses wasn't just hesitant, he was outright defiant. He wanted nothing to do with God's mission. And I want you to zero in on the passage we read a moment ago, Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Zero in on this excuse that he provides to God. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Do you understand what Moses is claiming here? Do you understand the excuse he's giving here? Moses is really saying, I don't know enough about you. I don't know you well enough to be the one leading this operation. Maybe you should get somebody who knows more than me. Maybe you should get somebody who's theologically more advanced to me. Than me. Moses is saying, I lack the knowledge of you to do this. And God responds, just like we saw last week, God responds with a lack, to a lack of knowledge with a name. God indicates that the way Moses can know him is by knowing this name. And look at what God said. Exodus verse, chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The Hebrew term translated I am, that is the proper personal name of God. It's written with four Hebrew letters, which are all consonants. In English, those four letters, which they would amount to Y-H-W-H. Y-H-W-H. And as you look at the Hebrew written on the screen, understand, you read it from right to left, not left to right. That name made up of four Hebrew consonants is often referred to as the tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton means consisting of four letters. And sometimes the personal name of God will just be called the tetragrammaton. 
And the pronunciation of this Hebrew name, to the best of our ability, is either Yahweh or Yehovah, depending on who you talk to. Yahweh or Yehovah. This name, this name is built from the Hebrew verb for to be. That's where the rendering of his name in English as I am comes from. And this morning, we want to consider what does this name, what does Yahweh tell us about God? There are three things I want to emphasize this morning. First, Yahweh communicates intimacy. The name Yahweh communicates intimacy. You know, the first appearance of the name Yahweh is not in Exodus chapter 3. The first time you will see the word Lord written in all caps is actually in Genesis chapter 2. Now that may seem insignificant at first, but consider this. We'll go through the entirety of Genesis chapter 1 without an appearance of the personal name of God. Throughout Genesis chapter 1, the generic term for God which is the Hebrew word Elohim, appears 32 times. So for the first chapter of the Bible, you never see God's personal name. For the first chapter of the Bible, all you see is the title God, the title Elohim. And so throughout Genesis chapter 1, Elohim created, Elohim said, Elohim saw, Elohim separated, Elohim called, Elohim made, Elohim set, Elohim blessed. Then we get to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. And there it says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord, notice, all caps. That's a reference to the name Yahweh. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And here's the thing. From that point forward through the rest of Genesis chapter 2, the predominant name is Yahweh. It will appear ten more times in Genesis chapter 2. So if you journey through and skim through Genesis chapter 2, it's Yahweh who formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life in verse 7. In verse 8, it's Yahweh who planted a garden in Eden and put the man in it. In verse 9, it's Yahweh who made to spring up every tree that is good for food. In verse 15, it's Yahweh who put the man in the garden to work it and keep it. In verse 16 and 17, it's Yahweh who commanded the man regarding which trees he could eat and which trees he could not eat. In verse 18, it's Yahweh who recognized that it was not good for man to be alone. In verse 19, it's Yahweh who brought all the animals to the man for him to name them. And in verse 21, it's Yahweh who caused a deep sleep to come upon the man. And in verse 22, it's Yahweh who took a rib from the man and created the woman. Now, why does that matter? Because in Genesis chapter 1, when God is interacting with creation, generally speaking, he's always identified as Elohim. But in Genesis chapter 2, when he's interacting with mankind specifically, he's identified as Yahweh. The point is that when it comes to God's special creation, when it comes to the ones who are made in his image, 
God wants a personal relationship. God wants an intimate relationship. So he stops being simply Elohim, and he starts being Yahweh. And if you think that doesn't really matter, just look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Look at what the serpent said when he tempted Eve to eat that forbidden fruit. He said, did Elohim actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, we're told that Yahweh is the one who gave those instructions to Adam and Eve. But Satan sought to deceive Eve by subtly changing God's name. By referring to God as Elohim instead of Yahweh, Satan, as one author said, sought to deceive Eve by hiding God's relational nature and thus the relational impact of the deed he was trying to get her to commit. And it worked. It worked because Eve's response in verse 2 and 3 was, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but Elohim said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch, touch it lest you die. Eve changed God's name too. Yahweh gave the instructions, but when the serpent tempted her, she reiterated the name the serpent attached. Think about it this way. Elohim is easy to keep distant. Elohim is easy to retain up there while we're here and to not be intimately connected with. But Yahweh, when you know someone's personal name, it changes the relationship. When your spouse looks at you across the room and says your first name, you know something's wrong. When there's no term of endearment, no honey, no baby, no sweetie, when it's your first name, you know, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And when you call out your kid's name, but you include that middle name, they know something's up. We understand the power of personal names and so does our father and he extends his personal name to us to understand that our relationship with him is personal you see Yahweh is important because it's a constant reminder that our relationship with God is intimate and when we sin against him he takes it personally like a spouse that's been cheated on, as is depicted in the relationship between Hosea and Gomer in his prophetic work. Like a father who's been rejected by his child, as is depicted in the parable of the prodigal son. Or an individual who's been betrayed by his best friend, as was the case with Jesus and Judas. You see, all other names and titles of God are basically descriptive expressions of, of who he is and what he does. But Yahweh is his personal name. And he gave it to his people because he intends for his relationship with his children to be personal. And so the name Yahweh communicates intimacy, the very intimacy God desires to have with you and I as his children. But the name Yahweh also communicates autonomy. Now that word autonomy 
generally speaking, refers to independence. And more specifically, it refers to self-governance. That's how we usually use that term. When it comes to Yahweh, I'm employing this term autonomy in the more general sense to express the fact that he exists free of any external control. Yahweh is completely independent. Did you notice that when he introduced himself to Moses as I am, there is a point at which he expounded up on that name by using the phrase, I am who I am. And this is significant because as one author pointed out, he is who he is, not who you or I want him to be or choose to define him as. God said, I am who I am, not I am who you want me to be. Do you remember what happened at Mount Sinai while Moses was away receiving the Ten Commandments? Some of the people felt like Yahweh had abandoned them due to Moses' prolonged absence. So they approached Aaron and said in, in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 1, Make us gods, make us Elohims who shall go before us. And Aaron instructed them to give him their gold jewelry, which he then fashioned into a golden calf. And when the people saw that golden calf, they said in verse 4 of Exodus chapter 32, These are your gods, these are your Elohims, Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then we're told in the very next verse, verse 5, that Aaron built an altar and made a proclamation. And look at Aaron's proclamation in verse 5. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. Did you catch that? Aaron identified the worship of the golden calf with the worship of Yahweh, not just the worship of a generic Elohim. What happened at the base of Mount Sinai was not simply the creation of a new deity to worship, but the adaptation of Yahweh into the deity that the people wanted to worship. They wanted a God that met their expectations and their desires. They wanted a God that they could physically see, that they could physically touch, that would physically be in their presence. They wanted a God that they could feel bigger than. So on that day... God stopped, excuse me, on that day, they stopped worshiping I am who I am and started worshiping he who is what we want him to be. And how did God react to that? How did he react to their change of him? Look at verse 7 of Exodus chapter 32. He told Moses, go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. In other words, God was so angry that he temporarily disassociated himself from the Israelites. They weren't his people, they were Moses' people. He didn't bring them out of Egypt, Moses did. God did that very thing that parents do when their kids make them mad. He did that thing where, where, where you go to your spouse and say, your child did this, your child did that, your son did this, your daughter did that, not our child, not our son, not our daughter, yours. God did that very same thing. It's biblical. That's how upset Yahweh was with a people 
who tried to dictate his identity. And the point is that when we start trying to define God on our terms, it arouses his wrath. He's not the God of our choosing. He is who he is regardless of whether or not that's who we want him to be. And Yahweh communicates that autonomy, that independence he has apart from us. God doesn't need us. God chooses to love us. And so he is completely autonomous from us. And Yahweh reminds us that he is who he is, regardless of what we say. But there's one final thing Yahweh communicates, and that is fidelity. Returning to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, when God gave his personal name to Moses, I want you to notice something else he said. Look at verse 15. Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. In this moment, God is not only un unveiling his personal name to Moses, but he's connecting that name with the patriarchs. He's associating his personal name with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And as already been mentioned, the first appearance of the name Yahweh is way back in Genesis chapter 2, not Exodus chapter 3. And so one thing you'll notice if you read the text of the Old Testament, if, if you go back and read the accounts of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you'll see the name Yahweh appear in each of their stories. The name of, of, of Yahweh is referenced in, in Abraham's story in Genesis chapter 14, verse 22, and chapter 15, and verse 1. The name of Yahweh is referenced in Isaac's story in Genesis chapter 25, verses 21 and 22. The name of Yahweh is referenced in Jacob's story in Genesis chapter 28, verse 13, and chapter 14, 49, verse 18. So God's name is affiliated with the patriarchs all throughout the book of Genesis. Why does that matter, though? Because as one commentator pointed out, a new name would not have helped Moses if the problem he was facing was a lack of credibility on the part of the Israelites. If Moses showed up in Egypt, walked up to the Israelites and said, yeah, Yahweh sent me, and they don't know who Yahweh is, it's not going to do him any good. A new name is not going to help Moses win over people who don't know the name. So it seems that the purpose of God giving his name to Moses, his personal name to Moses, is not to introduce a new name, but to underscore the precise identity of the one who is sending him to Egypt. I believe this is God's way of declaring his fidelity to his people. Fidelity is just a fancy word for faithfulness that happens to rhyme with the other key words in this lesson, so that's why I chose it. Through the name Yahweh, God is reminding Moses as well as the Israelites that he keeps his promises. He's the God of Abraham, he's the God of Isaac, he's the God of Jacob. So those covenant promises he made to them are still intact. 
You see, if you journey back into the story, particularly of Abraham, since that's where it all starts, he had promised to make Abraham exceedingly fruitful so that nations and kings would come from him in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 6. Just a couple of verses later in Genesis chapter 17 verse 8, Yahweh had promised to give Abraham and his offspring all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And then if you go back to chapter 15, verse 13 and 14, this may be the most important promise that he ever gave. Yahweh announced that Abraham's descendants will be sojourners and servants in a land that is not theirs for 400 years. But he promised to bring judgment on the nation that they serve and to bring them out of that land with great possessions. And what is Moses about to do? Go to this land where they've been sojourners and servants for the past 400 years and lead them out under the the direction of Yahweh who will bring judgment on that nation and escort them to a new land with great possessions. You see, he's Yahweh. He's the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the very God who promised these things to their forefathers. And that name is connecting him to them, to the forefathers, for the present-day Israelites. By connecting his name to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God is in effect saying, I am who I always have been. I am the unchanging, promise-keeping God of your fathers. And because he keeps his promises, Paul can declare in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, that even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's Yahweh. He's the God who always has been, always will be, and is. He's the God you can depend on because he is faithful even when we are faithless. Picture on the screen is Old Faithful, a geyser in Yellowstone National Park that was discovered and named back in, 19, back in 1870. Since then, it has become the world's most famous geyser. And the interesting thing about Old Faithful is that its eruptions are not the tallest in Yellowstone, nor are its eruptions the longest lasting but it is by far the most popular geyser. Why? Because it's consistent. Old Faithful has erupted more than a million times since Yellowstone became the world's first national park in 1872, and it currently erupts around 20 times a day. Its eruptions can be predicted with a 90% confidence rate within a 10-minute variation based on the duration and height of the previous eruption. That's all technical terms taken off of the, of the Yellowstone National Park website. It basically says, hey, we can predict when this geyser is going to erupt most of the time. We're better than the weathermen. Because this geyser is that dependable. And that geyser is a microcosm of the faithfulness of Yahweh of God who is always faithful. Yahweh gave us his name because he wants 
an intimate relationship with each and every one of us. Yahweh gave us his name because he wants us to understand that he is autonomous, he is independent, he is who he is regardless of who we want him to be. And Yahweh gave us his name because he wants to underscore his faithfulness to us. He wants to remind us that he is the God who fulfills his promises. This morning, this morning maybe you needed to understand the God you serve or the God who seeks you out. Maybe you need to come to understand who Yahweh is so that you can choose him. This morning, that opportunity is available to us. Maybe you have not become a child of his, and you need to make that decision today by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is his risen son, by repenting of your sins, and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. Or maybe today, you're simply like the prodigal son. You've wandered away, and it's time to come home. Yahweh is faithful even when you aren't. So return to him today while together we stand and sing.
Please be seated.